Welcome to episode 71 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Sergi Starkovsky. Sergi was made famous on our screens in 2013 as he beat the great Roger Federer on centre court at Wimbledon. He then became famous for the wrong reasons, for outspoken comments about lesbians in tennis, about not believing in equal pay. He's been on the ATP Player Council and he speaks about all of that and more in this podcast. It really is a fantastic listen. Uh, you'll, You'll believe and you will be with him on some of his points and I'm sure on some of them that you might not. But what I love about these podcasts is it gives people the opportunity. It's not just about creating headlines. It's about creating context around why someone believes something, why they might say that, which when we pick up our newspapers or we pick up the headlines on our phones, on the websites, it's it's just taking a little small snippet of it. Do I believe and am I on the same side as him with all of his points? No, I'm not. And I, and I think that's also what makes podcasts and these conversations all the more, all the more exciting, all the more uh, educational, and and I promise you, you won't be disappointed listening to this one. I'm sure you'll take lots from it. I'm sure it will provoke lots of thoughts that you have, and and, and if it does, then I believe it's a conversation well worth having. I'm going to pass you over now to Sergey Starkovsky. Sergey Stakovsky, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Control the Controllables. A big thank you from Dan and I for coming on tonight with us on the show. Thanks, guys. And, and Sergey, before before we say hello to you, I just want to say hello to my co-host, John. It's the listeners won't have, won't have heard his voice for about 30 podcasts. He's been a busy man. So nice to join us, John. Thanks for thanks for coming back. Yeah, no, it's it's great to be back, Dan, and uh, pleasure to be back on here and uh, listen to your great voice again. Um, the last time I saw Sergi uh, was actually in 2008 in Dublin, watching him play in a marathon in Davis Cup against Connor Island. Never forget it. Um, so, yeah, great to see you again, Sergi. Uh, that was an amazing match. You were two sets to love, Dan, and you came back. You won it 7-5 in the fifth uh, to win the tie in Dublin. Um, so, yeah, not so good memories for us, but uh, you came on a long way since then. And uh, just a, a short intro about you and your career. Um, you turned pro at two, in 2003. You've had a career high of 31 ATP September 2010 and a career high in doubles of 33. You've played Davis Cup for Ukraine and been a member of the ATP Council. And that big famous match against Federer and Wimbledon, we'll all remember you. For that so once again a big thank you for coming on tonight with us on control the controllables thanks guys thanks for inviting it's nice to be talking to some serious tennis people yeah we'll, we'll see about serious i mean i just you know what i mean the first and again i have to share my story with you again online i know i just i shared it offline but uh the tennis world uh sergey looking at them here i'm getting like cold sweats thinking of that Wednesday afternoon in Segovia, and I think it was 2005, 
and we're playing against yourself and Alex Bogdanovich, myself and James Auckland. We're pushing to try and be top 100 in the world doubles. We're playing two skillful boys who don't want to win the match. And literally, we know that they don't want to win the match. You pretty much did everything you could not win the match, but we, you still managed to beat us 6-4, 6-4. So that's how much more serious you are at tennis than, than I ever was. And, and I guess to start us off, what we've been doing with all of our guests is, you know, your, your tennis journey, how did it start for you? How old were you? What was your first introduction to tennis? Well, I started at the age of six. Basically, my father used to play basketball. Uh, and because of his basketball skills, he was accepted to the medical university in Kiev because he was not born in Kiev. He was born in the province. Okay. Uh, my mother used to play some table tennis, but nothing major. So basically the concept of the family was that they want their kids to do sports in order to stay out of, out of streets for a long period of time. So I was doing swimming, tennis, basketball. My elder brother was playing basketball too. He was also swimming with me. So we did everything apart from football. So we did every sport, but not football. And I got introduced in tennis at the age of six. Uh, I got a gift from my grandfather, a tennis racket. And I just basically went to the, now it's a National Olympic uh, Stadium. But before it was a, uh, it was a Republican Stadium. And uh, above that, there was a four courts with a, like, a, I would say a tartan surface, the, yeah. the bumper. And there was a group of 50 kids. Uh, I was there twice a week, you know, more hitting against the wall than I've seen a coach, I think. And then from that time, it was just, you know, year by year, the group was getting smaller. So by the time I was eight, the group was maybe of 25 kids. And it just got smaller and smaller. By the, by the age of 10, it was a group of six. And I was kind of trying to play it more or less more. It was four times a week. And I really enjoyed it. I, I have to admit that I really enjoyed playing tennis all the way. I was always looking forward to going to the practices. Uh, and, you know, out of all, it would be in incredibly hard to come up uh, in tennis world during the end of 90s, beginning of the southern Ukraine, because yeah. there were not enough um, facilities for tennis uh, in whole Kiev as a four million uh, city as of now, okay, back then maybe two and a half. We had only three indoor facilities for tennis wow. uh, with total of six courts, which uh, you can imagine the prices, price tags on those uh, clubs and uh, and courts were so uh if i would say in ukraine it was impossible for me to play tennis uh professionally so i had a chance to move and me and my mother and my younger brother we moved to the czech republic to a really small place which called which is not far from austria only 40 kilometers out of austria and uh I basically got an offer from the club that I can practice there for free as long as I'm going to be representing the club in all the national championships and all the categories they asked me to. And that's basically how my journey began. I spent six months from the age of 12. I was spending six months in Czech Republic, six months in Ukraine until I finished the school in 2002. And then I spent almost nine months in Czech Republic. Uh, by that time, I moved to all of the well-known Prostejov uh, at the age of 17. Yep. I was basically practicing with Burdich and Tabara and Novak, but unfortunately I didn't stay there for long because there was not enough coaches to, so I was basically kind of a, a hitting partner for everybody, but not really coached by anyone. And then I, end of, uh, end of 2003, I moved to Slovakia 
Bratislava, and that's where I met uh, basically my second personal coach uh, was Jan Kroslak, ex-Slovak uh, tennis player. He was, I think, as high as 53 in world rankings. And basically all of my chain of my uh, life in tennis was a chain of, I would say, luck. Because, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get in Czech Republic because of the people that my father knew. They, they offered us some help. And then I was lucky to meet my first coach. And then I was lucky to move to Bratislava to get the facilities. And then it was all of, you know, all of those things are more of, a, a, I would say, a luck than a rational result of, you know, of a solid team working behind it. It was more of, you know, yeah. I was going with the flow. I was trying to play tennis. I was trying to devote myself to the sport. And uh, I had a huge support from my family because it was not easy for them. Uh, I have another two brothers. Uh, the elder one is a doctor and the younger one is uh, used to play tennis. He graduated from Penn State with a petroleum engineer degree, thanks to tennis, because he got a, a scholarship. So it, it, it was incredibly tough for the family, but uh, thank God I was able to make a career of it, because at least uh, I, uh, I can say that my parents uh, were proud of it. Yeah, what an amazing story. And if I take you back to you've been 12 when you're moving countries like that, what's, what's your memory of that? Was that, were you, were you excited to go? Were you nervous? Was it a, was it a big move? And then in turn, did that then, did you feel the pressure, I guess, of, wow, I'm now living in a different country and I, and I, and I have to do good in tennis now. Well, actually I cannot say because when you're young, you don't feel these pressures. You don't feel yeah. you, everything excites you. You know, you move to a different country, it's exciting. They speak different language. The, it was the first time that I left Ukraine as it is, you know, and went to a different country. And, uh, you know, we went to a really small city. We're talking about going from two and a half million to less than 10,000 population. Okay. It was a village more of a city. Yeah. And it was tougher for my mother than for me because I was 12. I was happy that I can spend all day long on a court. Yeah. But her going from, you know, a normal life to basically a, a, a foreign country village life is a different topic. So for me, it was more of, you know, I really wanted tennis and I, and I really felt the support of the parents and they really didn't make a big case of it. So they didn't, they never throw it in front of me, you know, that saying that because of you, you know, my mother has to be here six months. And so it was really, really thankful to my parents for that. And what would your advice be to tennis parents? We have a lot of parents, I'm sure, that listen to these podcasts you know, parents of 10 year olds, 11 year olds, 12 year olds, 14 year olds, give me a cup, give us a couple of bits of advice. Don't do what my parents did. <laughs> it's not <Okay>. what, <laughs> no, I would say that for me, what I'm really happy, what my parents pushed me to is that I graduated from school. I actually graduated from two schools, one in Czech Republic and one in Ukraine. Yeah. I did, did them simultaneously. And I think it's one of the huge mistakes which our parents are taking the direction of, you know, getting their kids to homeschooling early or whatever, and just yeah. trying to do tennis, tennis, tennis. And I think it's not right in terms of uh, the grow of personality inside that person. Uh, I think all of us need to have a decent education and it helps us down the road on the court as well. Because yeah. then if you're not exposed to society, like you are in school and you're constantly on the tennis court, tennis becomes more than your life. It becomes basically everything you know. Yeah. And which is then very hard to accept in case you're injured or something is going wrong. And it's very hard to accept that, you know, there is a different life. So for me, 
my kids play tennis. They play tennis twice a week, although they're only six and a half and five. But I'm not going to push them in any direction. I'm just going to let them do whatever they feel like. And if they really want to play, of course, I'm not going to stop them. I'm not going to be a great fan, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop them because that's what they want to do. Yeah. But for me, education is the keystone to every team. Very good. It's great, it's great advice. And um, I think the, the game probably has changed an awful lot from where it was when you were growing up, Sergi, um, to where it is today. What, what would you think are the big differences in the game of tennis when you were growing up to where it is today? Well, I remember when I was starting on the Pro Tour, because for me, it's very hard to remember the juniors. The junior years, I think the tennis on a junior level doesn't change that much. I mean, they all play on the level that they play, and it's determined by the age group. Uh, I was unlucky enough to have Nadal and Gasquet in my group age, and I actually never seen them under 14. I played a couple of tournaments under 14, the European Ten Tennis Association, and I've never met Nadal or Gasquet because they quit their group before I even started. So uh, all on, at this stage, it's very hard to determine what is the right level, but as soon as I got in men, I definitely remember a very, very big difference between the guys who actually play tennis and the guys who were playing tennis as a part-time job, let's say. You know, they played some futures, they, you know, they're more of a, they were working or playing tennis, but it wasn't really their profession. And the difference I see now is that the group of people, let's say, when I started when I was 17, I got pretty fast to 350, 400 in the world and I'm saying pretty fast meaning like I don't know seven eight tournaments on the future but today the the picture dramatically changed because everybody is trying to be more professional and everybody's playing longer the careers of the players are getting longer meaning that that gap that gap is closing up when let's say you know you have only 100 guys in the top 100 yet the average age of the top 100 is going to be closer to 30 years old I would say now yeah. All of these young guys, which are from 20 to 25, which are still young by today's measurement, they are somewhere from 100 to 200, which means that 200, which was there before, moved to two to three, and all of that pushed. And the level of tennis is actually today, I would say, or before the pandemic started, it was the highest I've ever seen, and ever I think anybody ever could imagine. Yeah. The, the, the amount of quality tennis players trying to break through and not being able to do so because there's just too many, let's say, elder players with more experience and actually quality players that it's not so easy to break through anymore. And you have to be insanely gifted or just very talented to be able to break through into the top 100 in one or two years. Like, let's say, the Shapovalov or, yeah. I don't know, Felix Auger or Sinner. These guys are out of ordinary for today's standards. Yeah. So what we're saying is... There needs to be an age cap. <laughs> is this Elvis <laughs> to Roger? <laughs> yeah, Roger, you you've been you've had an extra five years, mate. Come on, right? time to time to move over. It's no, it, it's it, it's a very it's a really smart way of looking at it. One one topic I'd I really have to go back to. I think I think you're our first what we would call I guess Eastern European tennis player, and. and and, and I guess the, the narrative coming from the UK, Ireland, countries like this is obviously we look and go, okay, Ukraine, Russia, 
you know, the Czech Republic, these countries that traditionally just seem to churn out tennis players after tennis players after tennis players. And what you tend to get and is you get one narrative, which is they want it more. They, they, in their country, they want it more. Can you tell me, tell me, having lived it, is that true? Well, it is. In a lot of ways, it is. But if you're talking about Czech Republic, I wouldn't really take them because these guys really have a system, which yeah. I came to. And yeah. they really, their system really works yeah. in terms of clubs and you know, the system of how they perceive their juniors and they support them and they lead them. So that system works. And that's why they constantly have a new generation coming up. Although they had a little, you know, fell out for the last five years, but now the new young guys, they're coming up and they look really sharp. Uh, Ukraine, uh, every player that you see on tour, maybe apart from Svitolina, because she had some really decent support from, uh, from the sponsor, which I know, he took her really early. The rest of the players is more of, let's say, against logic than thanks to some sort of, uh, I don't know, a uh, perception done by federation or the government. We had zero support. I came up with zero support from the government or the federation whatsoever. There's no money in it. So it's more against all odds, I would say. Uh, Russia is pretty much the same. But if you look now on these young Russians, uh, they all came up from Spain. So Hachanov, Rublev, Medvedev was practicing in France for the, for the, since he was, I think, 16 or 17. So none of them came in Russia because it is extremely hard. Firstly, yeah. travel logistics. When you fly from Moscow anywhere, it's three plus hours. Yeah, yeah. So it, in, in terms of this way, yes, we are hungrier because we don't have much to lose, but we get a lot to gain and we want it. Yeah. Because that's our ticket to life, you can say. But then on yeah. the other hand, many of the guys are holding, let's say, too tight to this ticket. And then they never make it because they're too stressed that they really want it. So, uh, you know, it, there's no right combination in tennis, unfortunately. You can see that from the big countries, we're talking about the Grand Slam countries with a lot of support. They are able to produce a lot of tennis stars, but not every system is great. If you look at Americans with the resources they have, it's not the great system. You know, you look in France, fantastic. They have plenty of players constantly changing and new generation constantly coming in and they've worked for this system and it works. UK, we all know sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's really hard. Australia is proving itself also well. So, it, you know, when you have money and you're able to create something, you have to find the right people. Because when you, have, when you take 100 kids and then from 100 kids, you need to produce two players is fairly possible but when you take one kid and then one of one kid you have to create a tennis player that's a very tough choice very good and the key um components of the system at czech republic um what 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 were there for you that made it work well for me it was the clubbing season so they still have the government support so they still have some money from the government and the federation filters it down based on the rankings by the group page so let's say i was a part of the club and this club had a, a top five player under 12 under 14 under 16 so they would get money from the federation for every athlete you know to support this athlete but the money went not to the athlete but to the club so the club could manage this money in the way they felt appropriate which was good and i think it still is a reasonable way to share the money or the wealth because based on the talent, you know, 
they try to create a better condition so the players would come to them so then they would get the money and that how it worked and uh, I believe for me the system was working perfectly because every single weekend I was able to play tournaments and you would come on Friday and you played sat you played Saturday Sunday tournaments the 32 draw in two days singles and doubles so you basically ended up playing two singles two doubles on Saturday and then if you want to win a tournament three singles and two doubles on Sunday and it was perfectly normal nobody said it's too much for the kids they're going to get exhausted everybody was perfectly fine these days one match a day two matches is too much i went through the system day in day out and i felt great because there was a lot of good guys it was like you know every weekend you would go somewhere not far from my city and you would compete against different guys you can keep compete against guys two three years senior to you just based on your will what you want to do and that that was great you if anybody listening from any federation around the world just listen to that listen but seriously it's not it's i mean you're very clearly a smart guy and that's that's coming through loud and clear here speaking to you Sergi. and it's and obviously in the positions that you've you've also been in but what you've what you've basically said is there's there's opportunities to train and then compete regularly competition you know it's it, it's not rocket science you know, and I, and you know, and I, I mean, I remember playing French league, the same thing in France, and I remember turning up Friday afternoon, and it was like there was about twenty six people training, and there was overweight guys, there was skinny guys, there was old guys, there was young guys, and everyone played to a good level, and because they were going to have five different teams playing that weekend, and it was going to be in front of everybody at the club. And they didn't want to show themselves up. So now all the club coaches want to train with the juniors and the whole ecosystem, just more and more people want to play. <laughs> you know, not everyone, you don't have to pay for every time that you play tennis. And then everyone's competing in an environment that they want to excel, they're feeling pressure, they're normalizing competition. And, and lo and behold, that's that's what's happened in France for years and years. And, you know, there's, there's players that keep coming through it. So why aren't more places doing it? And specifically, what are your thoughts on the UK system? My thoughts on the UK system? Yeah. I haven't experienced it. So for me, it's very hard to judge any system. Yeah. I've lived through, an, let's say, ecosystem of Czech Republic, partially of Slovakia, but that was already when I was a, a pro, you can say. So for me, it's also hard to judge. Yeah. What I do know is that it, it all comes to the ways that you can let the players or the young generation to compete and play and practice while they still are at school. The moment you, you're putting a, let's say, a choice between them that you either study or you play, that's a very tough choice for the parents and for everybody. You cannot make choices when you're 14 or 15 that you're going to be a, a pro tennis player. That's way too young, especially in men. In women, that's a different topic. It's, it's a different world. It's a different ecosystem. We, we cannot discuss it. But in men, when you look now that the earliest you break into the top 100 is 22, 23 years of age, you can't be really committing for eight years of professional tennis while you didn't finish your school. So for me, it was the key was that, you know, you finish, you, you went through school, you practice after school during the week. On Friday, you left, you drove with your, or you went by train, I don't know, 40, 50 kilometers. It was a village. Okay, in the wintertime, there was the biggest fun because they had only one court. One court, 32 players. It was a non-stop base from, from, from the moment you start <laughs> yeah. until midnight. And then you start the next day, early morning. Yeah. But it was fun. It, I'm, 
I, I know that these today, you know, it's very tough to imagine these conditions. But back then it was absolutely normal because, well, you know, firstly, we're not only competing these days against other sports. We're competing against technology, which means we're competing against gaming, phones, everything. And it's not easy. We're losing this fight. The tennis in general is losing this fight because it's not easy to engage children to be proactive. My opinion and it was when I was still in the council and when I was pushing this idea is that it's very simple. A lot of kids, they want to become uh, football players or they don't want to become anything else pretty much. It's, it's more of this way. Why? Because they see the football lifestyle. They see this star, they see these numbers. They read these numbers, every newspaper. Oh, I don't know, Ronaldo was sold for 100 million and Bale went back to for 80 million. And they see their salaries, they see their lifestyle, they see their capabilities. And I say, well, I want to be a football player because I can see a hundred players which are driving a Ferrari. I want to be part of that ecosystem. Whether in tennis, you can see top 10 guys driving a Ferrari and the rest of them is kind of having a good life. Yeah, earning a good money, but not to the extent of the football. Yep. So this is where the perception needs to be changed. If we want to compete for young generation, and we want to show them that this is actually profitable and it can be, you know, sexy for them because they, they you know, they sit in the phone, they want to play Counter-Strike, I don't know, Resident Evil whatsoever. Then we need to pay the players more. We need to pay the talent more. And yes, maybe, un, uh, let's say, how, how we put it? Mm, not that unintentionally, but maybe undeservably because we have, uh, let's say, some players say, well, for losing first round of Grand Slam, more than 100,000 is impossible. So why is it impossible? Why a salary of a player who sits on a bench the whole year on, not playing one match, can be a couple of million a year? Yep. And yet, for getting into the Grand Slam, which means you have to work year-round to be able, to, with your ranking, to get in, is not worth it? For me, this is the... If we will be able to deliver that the tennis is, I'd say, more financially appearing it will be much easier for us to gain some more talents. Because right now I, I, I see kids and they, the kids these days, they're not that stupid. They are smart. And then they calculate and they say, look, well, for me to get into there, I need to be really good and still have some luck all the way. But the odds of me being a top 100 player are fairly slim. I would rather do something else, you know, and be done with it. So if we want to attract, we want them to take this risk because there's a big benefit. Because as of now, there is a benefit of being a top 100 player, which means that, you know, you'll be known in your country. You'll be, but this is not the financial benefit they're looking for. And what ranking do you, do you think personally should be the place where you start to make money from the sport? How, how low down the rankings would you, do you think it should go? I would say that the qualities of the Grand Slam. As of now. Yeah. And do they currently, so I guess 230, roughly 230 to get Quali's Grand Slam. Are those guys making enough money to make a living? No, not these days. Well, it's significantly better than it was to be. I traveled to my first Australian Open Qualies for a 1700 Australian dollars back in yeah. 2004. Right. Yeah. 2004? No, 2005 Australian. 2005. So yeah. Australia. Uh, today we have what 15,000 Australian dollars yeah and that changed just dramatically in the last seven years not yeah. before so prior let's say 2010 it was still the same money so for me it's important to 
have the ecosystem where the players are making money, but we also have to understand that there's a certain amount of tournaments which which are profitable and certain amount of places where it can be staged. So we cannot really create, let's say, that the challengers will be paying a great money to the players to uh, to live off because then there's no reason for the player to strive to be better. He will just sit in the challenges all his career. So the system needs to be pushed that, you know, that you have to go up and you want to constantly increase because you want to earn more. Yeah. The biggest issue here is that the, the tournaments, which we're talking about, the challenges, that they don't really make money. I would say it's a French tor- tournaments are making money. The rest of it, it's more of, you know, I don't know, uh, a subsidy from the sponsors. But Grand Slams are making money and they're making tons of it. Yeah. They make insane tons of it. So these tournaments should be looking out for the sport, for the better of the sport, because ITF is not doing nothing for it, and we know. Okay. So we, we've seen their superb uh, change of structure uh, two years ago, which completely destroyed a generation of players. Yeah. So they are not there. They are not doing their job. They have a huge, <laughs> huge pair of employees, which are basically useless, but again, you can cut it out, you can leave it, it's up to you. Uh, but for me, the Grand Slams are the one who should, who should you know, step up and say, guys, you know what, we're going to do this for tennis. And that's what they're doing, but not to the extent that it should be. From my opinion, in today's world, if the qualification player, which is 230 in the world, can earn from playing just the qualities of the Grand Slams, 150 slash 200 thousand dollars, yep. would give him the, firstly, it will give him profit straight from the start of the season. Secondly, it gives him the ability to create his schedule around it and hire a coach, do something and not be constantly, you know, traveling from week to week, begging for this, you know, 500, 600, 1,000 euro on a challenges. Then he can really prepare and then everybody would be working around it. And that would be better. Yes, we maybe have a less uh, ATP events, possible. But if we are able to create a better environment where less players get less injured, Every, every fan will be happy because there'll be maybe more places that the players will go. You know, we have to, unfortunately, we have to go for the money and the money on the Grand Slams as of now. Okay. And, and in terms of, I mean, you obviously, you moved up the rankings relatively quickly and, you know, you were a Grand Slam junior finalist. So you were, you were one of the best in the world at your age. In terms of in terms of those guys that maybe take four, five, six years, and they're out there. You know, I'm speaking to actually Dominic um, Kopfer tomorrow for the for the podcast, and you know his story. You know, is unbelievable where he came from. You know, and, and the reality is, there's lots of players that do need to do their time on the futures. They do need to do their time on the challenges. How how does that work financially? Because currently it just doesn't. Unless you've unless you've got a sponsor, unless you are willing to take a, a, a big gamble on on getting a loan from a bank, or you've got a rich auntie who's going to give you 20, 30 grand a year. The reality is there is some talents being lost to that as well. So how how do we squeeze some of the money down to help that? Because that's part of the ecosystem as well. Well, uh, this year, I think we'll see a lot of guys ending careers because this year, from a perspective that all these guys we talk about, which is below 230, they usually play leagues, you know, whether it's a first German, second German, third German, Austrian, they play all of the leagues they can get yeah. handled to earn the money during the summer for actually travel and try to play professionally. Yeah. This year, all of those leagues were cancelled. 
So that is going to be a really big hit for a lot of the guys who were expecting or were counting on this money. So for me, yes, on one hand, this group needs to be supported. The other hand, they need to pass this stage. I, as you said, I was fast, but I was not top of my age. I mean, come on. <laughs> Monfils won three grand times that year. Yeah. Uh, Gasquet and Nadal, they were not even playing juniors at the time because Nadal already won the Roland Garros at the age of 18. Men's. So yeah. I was not really the best of my age, let's put it that way. No, but, but you were up there, Sergi. I mean, you were you were at 17,500 in the world and at 18, you were 330 in the world. So okay. I had a head up. Okay, you can say that. But I'll tell you the story about me and Monfils. We started a 2014 on a scratch. He was 300, I was 300. I qualified in Doha. He was wildcard in Doha. We both lost first round. He went to Australia. He had a wildcard into college. I didn't go to Australia because I didn't have a wildcard. Then we ended up coming back. He went to Milan. He had a wildcard in Milan. I qualified in Milan and I beat, I think I beat Ancic, and I lost in quarters to Soderling. He lost to Soderling uh, in the second round, just before me. Then I went to Dubai for qualies. He was Dubai main job. Basically, by the time we reached Wimbledon, he was top 100, I was 150. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it, it not really matters how good you are. You still have to work through because, you know, yeah. there's some people who get an easier pass. Some will get harder. You can get injured on the road. So it is hard. What the problem with the futures is that ITF is the structure who's supposed to take care of these guys. They're not doing it. So uh, there's many options. All of them involves either national organizations, which means the federations, or it involves Grand Slams that they get their hands into too. Otherwise, it is, let's say, ATP can do as much as they do. Let's say they, they raise their level of the minimum prize money and challenges to whatever is 60,000 now or 64,000. Which means it's good, it's better, but it's far from great. But we also have to understand that I don't believe that after this pandemic that the challenges will also raise again their minimum. You know, our goal when we started was $100,000 is the minimum level of challenger. That's not going to happen for a while now yeah. because we are lucky to have any challenges whatsoever. Yeah. So it would be either or. A long time ago, I offered an ATP a, a, a structure where everybody would get a year-end bonus based on his ranking. And then it depends only on the money that you have, how far back you put it. And then every tournament would count because then the players would say, well, I don't want to finish, I don't know, 190. I want to finish 185 because that would be a difference of, I don't know, three, $4,000 for me. Yeah. And then that would incentive. And then you can spread it out and put it to the 400, 500, 600. It doesn't matter. But again, it's very financially demanding, let's put it that way. Yeah. And where does U.S. college fit into this whole ecosystem, in your opinion? For me, U.S. college is one of the best systems existed on earth. Yeah. When I went to visit my brother, he firstly, first year he did in Oklahoma, and then he moved to Penn State, and I've seen the facilities they have there. I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away on yeah. what conditions, how much of the practice, and basically what the general conditions of how they prepare, amazing. I think that that system is basically, uh, how you say, it's not, it's not covering, but it's replacing the USTA professional system. Yeah. As we can see lately that out of college, basically all of the American players are coming through the colleges. Well, they're usually not Americans, they're usually Europeans, but 
uh, have a great number of players coming through and that system works perfectly and it's for me it's one of the best systems that exists yeah and, and unfortunately during this time a, a bit like what you're saying with the challenges and the, that's been hit pretty hard as well given given the pandemic so it's a it's a difficult time for everybody globally you know and i think we've got to get through the next 12 18 months to start you know making sure all of these parts of the ecosystem uh, are keeping going really yeah well i hope they will because for me i have to say that every university which having a a team with scholarship is an amazing chance for any athlete to get an education and a great facilities to practice for four years and basically wait for his moment. Because as we said, it's very hard to break through when you're 18 now. Yeah. When you go to college, you live on your own for four years. If you're determined to, to achieve something, you have all the facilities and everything you need to practice these four years hard. And then you come out of college, yeah, then it's all in your hands. You'll need to find some money for it, of course. But then you're ready. Then you're mature. You're mentally strong because you play a lot of matches inside college tennis. And you know you're ready to compete. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to. You've you've mentioned the ATP Council. Yeah. So moving moving into that, I guess I'd love to get as much insight as you can give us, really. But you know, I guess starting with you know how your experience was on it, and and then I guess my my big thing is how how much is your voice or the voices of the players heard through that council. Well, I started in uh, 12, 11, I think 11, my first year. I think my first year on the council was 11 and basically was I was always asking the wrong questions according to the other guys on uh, ATP meetings. You know? And uh, at the end of the day, I said, look, you're either going to go and be a council member or just shut up because <laughs> we're not interested in listening to your rubbish. Uh, so I basically, they nominated me and I accepted it and I went into the council what to say uh, the system is not perfect it's far from perfect of course it it weights heavily into the tournament side uh because of the structure uh, because of the tournaments exist for dozens of years and the players are coming and going and that's a very good factor for the tournaments because you know all they need to do is just stall time because they know that in six years this generation of players will leave the new one, which is unexperienced, and they don't understand how the system works, they will come and then they have another five years to, you know, to tell them what not to do and then they will leave and then the new one. So they play this game constantly. What I do believe that this system is capable of change. Uh, and I think we greatly proved it, including Jamie on board, Jamie Murray. Yeah. Which, and I think they did a tremendous uh, amount of work with Bruno Suarez when they were trying to deliver some changes in doubles. We delivered a massive changes in the singles uh, and doubles prize money, both on uh, the tour and the Grand Slams. Of course, uh, by the time I was going out, we had a, our differences in terms of where we go after. And yes, majority was still going for the money in the Grand Slams. I said, look, we, it's very nice to push them uh, the Grand Slams, but it's very hard to put them constantly because they tripled the prize money in the last six years or seven. Yet the tour increasing only by 50%. So either we are missing something, but we're only paying, giving them 2,000 points. Yet the prize money on the Grand Slam are basically six times more than uh, any must any master of 1,000. Mm -hmm. So there's no logic behind it. But I think that the structure works. 
it could, if you have a really good group of individuals which are single-minded and they oriented into the, delivering something good, but not for themselves as of now, but for the generations to come, it is possible. And what's the one thing that you wanted to change but were unable to influence? Oh, there will be many. There will be yeah. many. There will be many in terms of uh, compensation of the ATP staff. It will be, it will be in terms of insurance of the players of the career insurance. It, there was a lot of topics which we could not, but it all ends up in a financial structure. Okay. And, uh, we all unfortunately are tied to the tournaments, which are let's put it that way: if you run a business, if you have a shop depending on how much you buy, you sell bananas. So if you buy bananas for a dollar and you sell them for $2, you earn a dollar. But if you're capable of buying a banana for 30 cents and selling them for still $2, you're earning $1.7. So the whole concept of the tournament is to squeeze the prize money as low as they can in order to make as many, as much money as they can on the tournament. It's not for them financially interesting to increase the prize money. And this is normal because it's business. It's not yeah. their job to increase. They don't want this. It's the players on the tour who are supposed to drive this thing. Yet we see that we have, we have many tournaments, and I've did the studies starting from the basically essential starting of the ATP in 1991. We have some tournaments which prize money did not change in almost 30 years. Yeah. Like Stockholm. Yes, they might change the name from the international gold series into the 250 whatsoever but the fact does not change they paid 700,000 prize money back in 92 and they pay 750 in 2018 yeah and there's a different value in this money 30 years down the road i think yeah. we agree that. yeah yeah so and, so and sergey did you feel that the rest of the council uh was not agreeing with you on on these topics no, no, there were, the majority of the council were, but there were too many things which we had to cover, you know, and it was basically fight one battle at a time. But when we took on a bigger picture surrounding the prize money concept of the tour as itself, it comes to, unfortunately, the structure which is containing the tour, the three board members from the tour, uh, from the tournament, and the three board members from the, uh, from the players. Yet they have to come to the super majority vote, which means two of the players and two of the tournaments have to agree, which will never happen. Because okay. the tournament will never vote to deliberately decrease the income. Well, it's like if, if you would have a vote, if you want to buy a banana for 30 cents or for 70 cents, what would you vote for? 30 cents. <laughs> <laughs> every time. Every time, exactly. Every time it comes to this and they say no. So then the, 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 the basically the chairman is supposed to come and say, okay, guys, you know what? I have the right and I will put the increase at this level. But then he, he risks, if he says too high, he'll be sacked by the tournaments the once his term expires in three years. If he says too low, he'll be sacked by the players. So he constantly comes to the both parties and trying, you know, ah, we, we will do this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We've seen it. It doesn't work. It has to be... The tournaments, unfortunately, don't understand that if they're not going to be able to bring in talent into the tennis, into the tennis industry, they'll lose the tournament. The license will be worth nothing. 
but they're, yeah. they're willing to gamble on this part. So it's their choice. And does, uh, does and will the PTPA work? Look, I think the PTPA, if it would be structured as a proper association or union, it has a big chance of working. Yet when I read the, 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 the waiver which was sent, unfortunately not to me because apparently I'm not on their side. I don't know why. Uh, there's nothing concrete. There's, you sign here and you'll be heard better. I mean, I like Novik. Novik had a really couple of brilliant ideas. You know, maybe he did not thought them through well, but they were good ideas. But in his position as a world number one, as a 17 or 18 or 19 grand champion, and with, let's, I'm not counting his money, but with financial resources, he could actually go to a law firm and create a solid structure, not just a, you know, a list of players which he likes or which agree with him, and then they sign with him for basically what? That they will be heard better inside the ATP? But you have counsel for that. And that counts as actually working tool. Yeah. So for me, that's that's a bizarre situation. Yeah. Yeah. Just it from the we've talked about it on a few podcasts, and it just nobody seems to know what it is. It just exactly that. It just see it just seems to be Illuminatis. Yeah. It's <laughs> just. But then U.S. Opens come and gone. We got a nice picture. Got a nice picture of a few people on there. Not quite, you can even tell. I always laugh at Noah Rubin. We've had Noah Rubin on the podcast. Who Noah Rubin's quite outspoken and he was on that picture. And you can see he's thinking, what am I doing here? I've just, I've somehow, <laughs> I've somehow ended up in this picture. But then I listened to, a, to Noah Rubin and Mike Cation's podcast last week and not one thing has been done since US Open. Not one. There's not been, there's not been any communication. There's been just nothing. That's unfortunately, well, I don't know. I've been brought back to the council. Once they left again, I got a, I got an offer to come back to the council again, but I said, don't. You're not going to do a structure for the future with the old generation. You need to really bring in young blood. You need to educate them to see. I started in the council when I was 25. Yeah. You know, and I spent a basically best, best time of my career. I spent on the council destroying my career in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you need to take the young ones because they might have a different view on what I see. You know, they might say, "Well, you know, this is not what we want. I think the future will be different," and they have to come in and make the choice. But the PTPPA, uh, you know, if if uh, for me it's hard to comment. I, I I can't really comment because I'm not inside that structure. I'm not on their chat, and it's really chaotic what what they present for me. Uh, the timing was right from their perspective. You know, there was no opposition inside the US Open, no Rafa, no Roger, you don't know Stan. So for them, it was easier to, to manage the players which were there. But in terms of global perspective, pandemic, uh, not sure where the calendar will come back. Uh, ITF completely messed up last season. Uh, ATP struggling. Do you really want to send the message out that, you know, there's a a bigger problem inside the ATP? I wouldn't say so. Yes, I agree that ATP deserves to be pushed. It does. In many ways, it deserves to be pushed because they are, I'm not saying they're lazy, but they are pro-tournament oriented in many ways. And that yeah. needs to change because it's an organization for the players in the first. Yeah. 
but they are working hard. You know, yeah, yeah. they are trying to deliver. They, they. Um, for me, it's it's really bizarre because they're trying to punish the people who work the most, <laughs> which is yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Sergio, Sergi, how do you see the future for for the game we love tennis? Well, we're generous and we're lucky enough to have Grand Slams, which will thrive and be, you know, uh, be super prestigious events and they will be delivered the, the crowds and a fan experience. Yet, of course, uh, now we see this UTR, uh, I don't know, uh, ultimate showdowns and all these things that I like, which is not bad. It's just another way of the tennis players to make a living, which means it will, you know, it will generate some money for the players, which is good, but it's too much chaos now because, you know, last week, the, the Munoz won this ultimate tennis showdown. There was tournament, ATP tournaments. He was playing. It, it's bizarre in a way, but I believe with the guys like Deminor, Felix, Dennis, uh, Tsitsipas, Yannick, the tennis in the good hands. You know, Zverev, Dominic team. These guys are great athletes. They're great players. And they will be able to create their rivalries and they will deliver the tennis that we want to watch. The bigger issue is, is how the ATP and the Grand Slams and the ITF is going to handle the, how they will stream this tennis into the public, the social networks, and how they will deliver this result to the viewers. That is the biggest challenge, which I'm not able to see. And I think that there are different people with different positions will be able to answer these questions. Because for me, the biggest problem is that how do we deliver the sport that we like and we love to the next generations? to watch, to fall in love with, to start playing, to compete. And that needs to be on the, on the, on the smartphones, on the platforms, which we're not used to. I, I, I still remember hating people with a lot of nines in their phone number because I had to dial it in circles, you know? And they would have to go all the way back. You had to wait and dial it again. And then, <laughs> God forbid, he was online with somebody else. I had to redo it again. If you were living in England calling all of those nines, <laughs> you'll have the police around your house. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> be careful be careful doing that when you when you're in the UK so in terms of it's it's a it's a fascinating conversation or topic that and having you like and you're speaking so openly and I can I can feel like there's so many different insights we can get from you which is which is brilliant the 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 sport what is it that's dying in the sport so we've had people on the podcast five sets is too long you know, people don't want to watch it on the television. You know, all of these types of things. What is it that needs to change in order for us as a sport that we all love? Where Here we are. You're 11 o'clock at night in Istanbul. I'm 10 o'clock at night here in Spain after a long day on the court. John's 9 o'clock at night in Ireland. And we're speaking with the passion that we all have for it. So how do we, how do we get that passion in the hearts of our youngsters competing against all these other things? I would say definitely not by cutting the, the set short. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I was superbly disappointed when Wimbledon announced they're going to have a tiebreak and a, what is it, 10-all or 12-all? 12-all, yeah. I can tell you that every soul in the locker room was watching and Mahu was finishing their match. And they were watching it six hours straight on day two and another two hours on day three. Yep. Nobody moved away. Everybody was, when the heck is this is going to finish? And that was bringing in fans, the rivalry on the court. That's what we can sell. And that's what we're good for. It's one guy against the other. So we need to get coaching. 
No, coaching, we go there alone. You have to figure out by yourself. Yeah. It's it, every single tennis match is a small life to be living through. And it's the mistakes and the choices you make during that match which will deliver the outcome. Yeah. And you have to deal with it by yourself. If you have, you know, a team around you say, I do this. In the end of the day, it's like doping. You know, they said, oh, let's open doping to the sports. And then it's going to be what? Doctor against a doctor? And that's who's got a better doctor is going to win? Then wh where, is the real, where is the real value in a tennis player? So for me, competing is not really, for me, shortening the sets is not something I would do. Maybe I would do a, I don't know, the, the Davis Cup already shortened, which is great because I think Davis Cup was really killing it. It was a great experience for me. As you already mentioned, I still remember that match in Northern Ireland. I barely couldn't walk for the next three days after that match on the artificial grass in John Fitzgerald uh, Tennis Club, was it? In, in Fitzwilliam in Dublin. Fitzwilliam. In Fitzwilliam in Dublin. Uh, it was an unbelievable match. I'll never forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Was it, we can't let the listeners hear you say Northern Ireland. We're going to have a political battle here. That's I was it. just going to... I, 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 it's I, in Southern I, Ireland. I actually thought my, uh, my Wi-Fi was down there for a second. It was the Republic of Ireland you were in there now. But I do remember that was on immense club. Is it still the same? No, that's changed now, actually. It's, uh, it's, open, to, it's open to all now, Sergi. <laughs> I remember that was pretty surprising back then to see men's only. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Well, that actually uh, moves us into our next topic, actually, Sergi. Very, very, very nicely, actually. So 2015, <laughs> um, alleged comments, not for me to say whether they're true, um, around lesbians in women's tennis. Um, I believe it was Martina Navratilova, as well as many others that rightfully so i guess came and came and came to speak to you can you share your side of that story and i suppose give us the context to it it was very simple uh i was at the council at that time and i actually have a tremendous amount of friends through through the wta ranks because tennis players i mean because when i grew up you know all the tournaments ago it's boys and girls and you know in czech republic so basically i grew up with shafarova streets of uh I don't know uh, uh, what else they had there. Petkovska. We all were in a one bunch of players, which were basically communicating because I was speaking language. We were one group. And then the Slovakian came. And then, so uh, basically, I don't remember whether it was, uh, it was during the summertime. I remember that. Uh, uh, it was summertime, so maybe Paris. Uh, the reporter journalists came to me and asked me a question about the. Uh, the amount of uh, uh, homosexual players in the top 100. And I said, my answer was, well, I'm not aware of any, so I, I cannot tell. I mean, how can I tell? And he goes, no, but there's surely some. I said, well, yeah, well, most likely, but I'm not aware of any. How do you want me to comment on this? I said, well, Jilova said that there's at least 20 to 30% of the top 100 are gay. And I'm like, well, how can she tell? She's not, she's in the men's locker room or so. No, but she's very convinced. And then I just lose my nerve because this conversation was going for about five minutes at that time already about one topic. Yeah. I just lost it. And I said something which I do regret because it was, uh, it was not accurate. It was over-exaggerated. I said that uh, every second is uh, a lesbian and WTA tour, which was wrong. 
uh, although it was not very far off for if you take uh, the 2013 locker room on the WTA tour, it was not very far off. Uh, but again, I'm not proud of what I said. I put, got pushed into the corner and I basically lost my nerve. So, uh, and I deserve the hate and uh, the rest because I actually have great relationship with homosexuals or lesbians. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong. These people are, are superbly fine. It just, it's their own life. I don't judge people based on what they do in their lives. I yeah. judge their, what they do as their deeds. But every one of us has a freedom to do whatever he wants with his life. Yeah. And yeah. no one, not me, not you, not the presidents can judge what he does with it. So for me, the hate came at me. I deserved it, but not to the extent that it was because I basically have no problems with yeah. not of, uh, none of people. I mean, on tour, I even have very few unfriends that put it that way. They didn't like me and I don't like them. So it was a harsh time. I took it pretty seriously because it was emotionally tough because I understood that I did a mistake uh, of saying something out loud like this. But what can I say? And how, did, and how did you deal with that time? I guess all of a sudden from from being a tennis player, 30 in the world, 35 in the world, you you, you obviously very high level, but not a super, superstar, you know, not your, not your Djokovic's, your Federer's. And all of a sudden there's there's all of this coming coming down on you in the social media world that we live in. How, how did you deal with all of that personally? Oh, no, great. Not great because, you know, people are starting, you know, you, you read articles about saying that, you know, you are uh, you're sexist, not, not sexist, you're homophobic. That's what it's Yeah, homophobic, right? yeah. I'm homophobic and then your wife reads about it, you know, and your family reads about it. And then they were, well, you know, they don't, they don't really understand why would somebody say, and it creates all the traction inside the family more than, uh, against the fans and then of course you know you get all this uh, nice message on social media which you know they protect the, the identities of everybody but but from you uh so it was not easy i yeah. definitely took an emotional hit out there and i deserve that hit there's no question about that and it was not the only one in my career i came mm -hmm. up to, but the problem was that comment was that then from that moment the chain of reaction on every of my comment let's say equal prize money yeah. would come out with the same effect. You know, people say, ah, yeah. oh, homophobic, now he's a sexist and soon I'll be a racist or something. You know, it all comes to the people that don't want to differentiate. Yeah. Uh, from my understanding and my seeing, and I'm going to be rough and I'm most likely going to get some hard time after this podcast going to come out. But uh, for me, unfortunately, I respect every individual. I respect every race and every orientation. Yeah. But unfortunately, the minorities are usually coming out at you as the loudest one. Yeah. And for me, that's a problem because, you know, in, in today's world, you cannot say that, you know, white life matters because it's racism. Yet you can say black life matters or you cannot say yellow. Life. You cannot say anything apart from the black life matters, which is I understand where it comes from and I agree with it. But you cannot elevate one color over the other and say that it's OK because for the hundreds of years it was opposite. Yeah, but if we take, I suppose, if we talk about it in tennis context, to be a to be a white male playing tennis, which all three of us are, disadvantage. Yeah, we 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 don't know. I guess we don't know, and it's not that long ago that Billie Jean King and the and the nine 
fought for fought for some form of equality in in tennis and and actually I'm certainly very proud of tennis because there's no other sports that are even close to it <laughs> there's no the tennis is the only sport that's even close to going along that line but I think it's just very difficult for us to comment on it when if you are the minority what you are going through and what you have gone through and I know still you know, women will go through it still in tennis. They'll go through it in sport. Again, I listened to a podcast, Phil Neville, who's the England women's football coach, talking about the difficulties that they still have. I mean, if we take football, we talk about the Premier League, La Liga, all of those sports, all, all of those leagues came back as soon as, the, as soon as the lockdown was over. The whole world was fighting for it. There still hasn't been or there still hadn't been when I listened to, to that podcast, uh, a women's football match. And no one had mentioned it, you know, and all, all the men were back playing football and none of the women were playing football. So, so, so I guess it, it's difficult for us to understand what they're going through as that minority, which is why, why I guess what they're saying carries a little bit more weight, I guess. Most likely. I'm not arguing with it. For, but for me, the context of, you know, that the tour... ATP and WK has equal prize money on the Grand Slams at least. Um, yeah. It is a good sign. Yet, unfortunately... Do you agree with that? No, of course not. No? Uh, well, because, look, for me, let's say, women most likely maybe should deserve more money than men. But it's not up to us or for the organizers to judge. You see, it's not a daily job in an office where yeah. you do the same amount of work as or workload or thinking or creativity as any other counterpart, whether it's male or female. Yep. We are an entertainment business based on a market which you know we can gather around us, based on a fans, which it's it's the same as I would say, I would give you a perfect example. Uh, you're a fan of which club? Newcastle United. Newcastle United. Newcastle United is in the premiership now? Yeah, now come on, come on, Sergi. We've all worked <laughs> They're, they're, they're mid-table premiership. Mid-table premiership. Let's compare it to the best team in Ukraine. Okay, and unfortunately, I would say Shakhtar Donetsk, but my team is Dynamo Kiev. Okay, we're going to compare. We're going to compare it to the Shakhtar Donetsk, which basically yesterday beat Real Madrid three-two. Yep. Uh, and we're going to compare their salaries, payroll. What are we going to see? Are you see any differences? What I think will will happen, I would I would say that the payroll is much higher in in England. Because, Why yeah. would that be? It's the same sport. They compete same ninety minutes as the Shakhtar. Yeah. They compete in the league, but in Ukraine, what's the difference? Bigger, uh, bigger. It br it brings in more demand probably from from a television rights, from ticket prices, from these th from all of those things. Shouldn't FIFA just make it all equal and pay all the all the clubs the same money across the world yeah but so i have so i get that argument completely I, I and i'm with that argument completely i'm all about supply and demand so so this is my take on it and then i'd love to hear your thoughts on it if if i take my family to wimbledon okay i'm paying the ticket i'm paying for my ticket to go to wimbledon to for the experience of wimbledon yeah i, I, I don't even know who's playing you know, if I've got my centre court ticket six months in advance, so if I've got my ground pass six months in advance, I don't actually know who's who, who's playing at that event. So what I think is impossible to do when it's come 
combined sport, combined sex events. I don't think unless we stand there with a clipboard saying, who are you coming to watch play today? I don't think we can differentiate between who is providing that entertainment because it's all happening on one ground. Yeah, so I'm paying for my ticket on, on that one ground. So, so for me, in that instance, I believe that it should, it should be equal to anybody because everyone's playing that role in, in providing that entertainment. The next week, there's a tournament in Vienna and there's a tournament in, in Nottingham, okay? And the tournament in Vienna has got a 2 million euro deal with Sky Sports and, and it's 150 euros a ticket and it sells out. And the, the tournament in Nottingham is 20 euros a ticket and it's 50% capacity and it doesn't have a television deal, but it's on Controller Controllables Radio and me and John are commentating on it. Now, <laughs> now, now at this point, we don't know which tournament, if, if, if there's men or women or aliens playing at Vienna or men or, men or women or aliens playing at Nottingham. But if let's just for argument's sake, let's flip it and let's say Vienna was a WTA tournament then whoever's playing that double, that tournament in Vienna deserves more money than, yes. than the tournament in Nottingham. Absolutely right. So, so for me, my thing, and, and again, to flip it on the head a little bit and not, it's not whoever is bringing in more money for each event, regardless of their sex, should should then, because there's supply and demand, there's demand for that, then then should make more money. You know, in, in my in my in my opinion, but when it comes to the both sexes being in the same tournament, I just don't think you can differentiate. You no, know, why it should be equal. That's that's the whole point that you cannot differentiate whilst it's combined. That's why we fought for like seven years on the council not to have any more combined events, because then it's very easy for the tournament organizers to say, well, you know, it's we cannot trace who is bringing what part of of course if you're not Jan Tiriak you know and you say and you say whatever he say but uh it's for them it's financially more interesting to have combined events and that's because they don't have to pay the venue for an extra week for the rent of the venue they don't have to pay their staffers for an extra week you know it, it basically cut their expenses by one week and they do not they do not see that financial benefit. I'll put it differently. You know, we have a finale, the ATP Masters and WTA Masters. Yep. Now, yet the prize money are closely the same. Capacities of the stadiums and the feelingness of the stadiums, how many people are attending, attendance is significantly different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would imagine so. But I guess those those tours are those tours are separate. I guess I guess the thought process I would have, Sergio, as well. If I if I go back to when I was I went to US college. So that was ninety-eight to two thousand and two. And that was the Venus and Serena kind of boom. And and they were playing against, you know, Hingis and Capriati and Justine Henning. And 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 in reality, I think if you walked on the streets in America at that time for US Open. And you said, there's a ticket to go and watch this. And there's a ticket. The, the hottest ticket in town was Serena and Venus at that, at that time. So, so I guess it does, it does cycles. It, it, will, it, will do, it will do cycles on who, who is in demand the most. So, so could it not be a case of having more bigger events 
and maybe okay right now because I think the ATP have a real issue if I'm honest when when Federer Nadal Djokovic go you know and I don't think it'll quite catch up as fast and who's to say that the the biggest stars in the game aren't going to be females in five six years time I'm not arguing but that's what I'm saying that maybe WTA tour deserves more money than us yeah it's not to up to us or the tournament to decide my biggest issue is with when we were trying to push the grand slams to pass more money we did came to WTA yeah and the WTA said to their players that in no circumstances that the players or the council of the WTA supports anything of the ATP does because we don't want any negative press on us. We will get anyways, whatever they get, we will get it, but we don't fight for it. And that what drives me nuts okay. that they don't want to export the, the, all the cases you say is right. You know what happens now? I'll tell you, Ben Rottenberg, one and only, the New York Times, whatever. You know his tweets? If you go scroll down to his tweets, there are still tournaments which are apart, which let's say, I don't know, Cincinnati or whatever, that they're not together, but they're back-to-back, you know, man yeah. of them. And he goes out there and says, well, guys, these are the tournaments who do not pay equal prize money. And yeah. yet we're talking that some of these tournaments are, I don't know, a 500 ATP and 175 WTA. Yeah. And you go out there and I would say, I would press these tournaments to have equal prize money because they're 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 sexist. Yeah. How yeah. can and, and unfortunately this is a perception that we live in. Yeah, but you, if I go back, Sergio, though, you said you don't believe there should be equal prize money in Grand Slam. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. I don't believe in equality. It's either the women are going to get more, or the men are going to get more. But how are you going to differentiate in a Grand Slam? Well, that's up to. Listen, we're living in a futuristic technological world. You can track anybody anywhere where he goes and what does he watch. And I'm sorry to say, but for the last, I would say, 10 years at Wimbledon, the hottest ticket was the men's. If you go to Australia... The top men, the top men. Yeah, but we're, okay, we're talking about, no, even the normal regular day matches. But let's talk a different topic. Let's take Australian Open. Do you know... You'd like to purchase a ticket for the Australian Open final men's. How can you do that? I wouldn't know. Well, you can only do it if you buy the women's final too. All right, okay. So if you want to go see men, you have to buy the women as well. Is that not good though? Wow. Is, the, is it not? Is that not like, is there no, not a part of you that thinks, do you know what? Well, I'm not, well, I'm not Dennis. Have you got I'm, sons or daughters? I have daughter. Yeah, but do you know what? I mean? Do you not want a world where, where? Because I, I live in Spain. I've got two daughters. It unless they play tennis or they dance, they can't play sport. It's still, no, it's still their world like that. So, do we not want for our daughters to see and for us to be able to say tennis is leading the way in this? Do you know what I mean? It's an equal world. It doesn't matter. You're man or woman, black or white. Let's let's all let's all just crack on. I want it, but I want it to be on a ratio that when my daughter is there, she go out there and say, guys or ladies, we go out there and we fight for what's right for us. We don't go out there and say we want the same as men. Every time there's a prize money increase negotiation going inside the Grand Slams, the only answer from the WTA is, they don't want to see the prize money. They just ask one question. Is it the same as men? Yeah. Okay. And once it's confirmed, 
there's no more questions from them. And that's my problem. It's yeah. not about quality. It's about equal opportunity for me. And they do not even try to exercise their will to chase that opportunity. And that's my problem. It's not about the equal prize money. It's not yeah. about that they deserve more or less. It's not about them not going and exploring that system and trying to get more than us. Because yeah. I'm sorry, but if I'm a male, a single male, age 20 to 30, yeah. I'm watching men's tennis. I'm yeah. watching men's tennis. What about you, John? What do you, what do you, where do you stand? I'm just sitting on this fence here, lads, and I'm, I'm watching <laughs> you go at it, boys. <laughs> have, so, have you, have you ever, obviously, it was very, it was very high profile because Sir Andy Murray, who, you know, he can't, he can't be touched in, oh. in, in Britain. And, and he, have you and Andy ever had a conversation about it? I know you have via Twitter, but have you guys ever actually actually talked? But you're both intelligent guys. You both obviously got good at good strong opinions. Have you ever actually spoken about it face to face? Yeah, we did. And Andy's position is that we're supposed to give them a hand to pull them a bit, and then that in the future it might change. But my problem is was never with that. I'm happy to give them a hand. I understand that they have a tougher times and they have less tournaments and less prize money. But again, it's not up to, they have their own structure. If they would, let's say, as the beginning of the pandemic, they said that, you know, the ATP and WTA are going to join forces and create a new structure. Then I would completely understand it because then we're working as one united yeah. front and we're trying to deliver something the best for the fans and for the sport. But yet they have their own structure with their own CEOs who are getting million plus salaries to do exactly what? Yeah sit on the back of the ATP and trying to, you know, just go, we want the same as they want. Yeah. This is something which bothers me. I understand Andy. Andy has the right point. He says, we need to give them the hand. I agree. Yeah. But I, for me, it's equal opportunity, not equal prize money, equal opportunity of earning mm -hmm. the prize money. Yes. Of yeah. making, going out there and say, guys, you know what? We believe that our sport is undervalued and we want more. And we will say, girls, if that's the case, We'll be very happy to help you in every way. And I assure you that this will happen. There will be not one male guy resisting this. But it never comes. And it's always one-sided. Yeah. Because yeah, we all work. love our wives. We all love our daughters. We want the best for them. We understand that, unfortunately, today's world is, you know, there's not many sports for the women. But from swimming, I don't know, gymnastics and tennis. Yeah. But... On the other hand, there's not many other things for men's as well. There's not really a fashion industry for men, to be honest with you. Huh? You know how much is the top model of men is getting paid and top model of women is getting paid? The is have a look at this face, Sergi. This has not got any modeling on it. Do you know what I mean? You can't... <laughs> with this profile, huh? Modeling? You're going down the wrong, you're going down the wrong thing. But my last thing, because we could again. We could, we could, I don't want to completely just jump, but I think it's been a good, honest discussion and I, I completely respect your thoughts on it. I don't, I don't, I'm not on the same page with you for everything on it, which, but I do, which is also fine, but I do respect the way that you've put it. In, in terms of, I guess, this helping out, haven't Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy basically helped the rest of the ATP out for the last 15, 20 years as well. Because, because again, if we're being honest, 
the ticket that people are buying, they're buying to see those guys. They might go and watch Sergei Starkovsky play against Cameron Norrie on, on, on court seven at the US Open, but they're, but you guys are massively benefiting from their superstardom as well. You know, so it, 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 for me, it's just where the line stops. You know, do they then say, well, actually, everyone's buying the ticket to come and watch us. So the guys ranked 50 in the world playing on the outside courts shouldn't get paid as much as they do. You know, where, where does it stop, I guess, is, the, is, is, my, is my issue with it. Well, firstly, we all are aware of where Roger and Rafa and Novak and Andy and Stan and all the top guys push this level of tennis and yeah. the revenue and push the basically the stardom, as you said. The only difference is that these guys cash their checks not during these Grand Slams. And we all uh, know. Yeah. They yeah. cash their checks on the deals in terms of sponsorship, in terms of appearance, in terms of everything. And those checks... Believe me, they are 100 times higher than yeah, any yeah. prize money we ever see. Yeah, yeah. So there is, believe me, they, they, they don't, there's no lack of prize money for them. The same is for the women. Yeah. But I'll just give you one example. I'm not sure whether they change it or not, but I'm pretty sure the last year, and you can, you can check it and then put it in here or not. But if you check a prize money in Dubai WTA and a prize money in Dubai ATP, you will see a slight, problem for me out there let's say the men usually get 90 percent of the previous round plus if he wins let's say we start at 10 then the second round is 19 and then it's i don't know 35 or whatever it is you know and we're doubling it up basically it looks almost like double yet the wta sometimes in order to um, level the winner's track to the atp side does tricks like let's say Dubai is the first round loser, I think gets I don't eight thousand dollars. Then the second round loser is getting sixteen. But if you go from the second round to quarterfinals, you're getting eighty. And then from quarterfinals to semifinals, you're getting one hundred seventy. And then from semifinals to the finals, you're getting three hundred. And then you got four hundred sixty or something. So this is what the problem lays along the way as well because the women they always complain we don't have enough money on a lower level ranking and i agree because it's all done pro top oriented yeah, yeah we don't have this it is a significant amount in the end but along the way everybody gets a share with the money element of like there's a, obviously a lot of talk about money and finance and uh here in the game and i suppose tennis heavily revolves around it there's no getting away from that for any 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 player um just what what would your advice be for a new kid on the block here wanting to pursue his dream to become a professional tennis player and what would your advice be for him for his parents you know maybe the coaches that he that you know that, that that's coaching him what would be the advice now starting off i would say uh, one thing that tennis really taught me through the years is that everything's possible. You can achieve literally anything you want if you're eager to go for it and work for it. I've seen, you know, since I was 20 years old, I stopped judging players in terms of how good are they and where where is their maximum level that they will reach. I've seen so many guys who were incredibly much more talented than me in that perspective never being able to make it 
yet I have seen the guys which I never believed that would be anywhere near top 100, going not only into the top 100, but deep inside it and staying there for quite a few, few years. So for me, the only message is if, you're, if you love the sport, if you're willing to go the distance, then you, everything is basically in your hands. There's not much needed from you. If you of course, you need the facilities to practice, you need the coaches, you need, you need something. Just, but if you are, let's say, 14, 15 years of age and you already play on a more or less decent level, your, your, your limit is literally non-existent. You can go as high as you want. You can achieve. And that what you're going to see with Dominic Kopfer, which you're going to have tomorrow, because there is no limit. If Paolo Lorenzi is capable of winning his first ATP title at the age of 31 and breaking into the top 100 at the age of 30, or 28, I, I, I'm not going to be uh, precise here, then where's the limit? There is none. Yep. You can yep. basically achieve anything you want. You just have to work for it and wait. What a lovely message. That's, that's for me, that's the best part of us is that it's all in your hands. You know, you go out on that court and there's nobody apart from you and the opponent who's going to decide what's going to happen on that court. There's no team. There's no referee to give you a red card. It's just you and what you bring inside that court. And that is the beauty of our sport comparing to the footballs, to the basketballs. There's no coach who decides how your career will, you know, will go. He'll put you in a pitch where, because he likes you, not because you deserve it. You know, here you determine everything by yourself from the day one until the day you finish. It's your, it's your ability and your uh, decisions, which bring you where you are. Like where they bring me now to Istanbul, where I played semi-final of doubles and challenger, being 119 singles in the world as of now, unfortunately. Being 30, 10 years down the road and being 100. I still love this game. I don't want to quit on the terms which it dictates me to quit. I'll still give it a shot. But it's my decision. It's a decision of my family. And I have three kids now, so it's not an easy one. But it's every single day decision which makes you who you are on the tennis court. I love it. It's a, it is a great message. As Dan just said there, and I, I have to say, it's probably one of the reasons I love tennis myself. It's, uh, you know, the numbers don't lie in it either. You, you go in, you compete against the other guy or girl that's on the other end of the court. You win, you lose, or you learn at the end of the match and you move on and you go to the next one. And, and, I, and I think uh, you've put it really well there. It's not up to someone else's opinion about whether you should be on a team or not. You, your your uh, your your work on the court does the, the, the does that for you, and uh, and I love that about tennis. Sergi, who who shocked you the most? Who's you know because you're saying that, and obviously you probably thought a little bit different in your younger years. Which players got high that you never ever thought it on the men's side? Is there anyone for the players who are playing now? Not it... necessarily. Well, in general, for me, I would say uh, David Ferrer. Yeah. Uh, because, well, you also saw him back in 2002 and 2001. Yeah. He was nowhere near to be what he became. Yeah. Uh, I would also, from, for now, for me, I remember uh, Bautista starting his career. Mm. And I was like, this guy, I mean, he was playing well, but not to the extent where he, you know, I would never, ever expect him to be as far... Of course, the surfaces, ball changes, everything everything slowed down a bit. But still, he is incredibly solid in every aspect of the game. Mentally tough as hell. So, I mean, th these guys are surprising me. 
But again, I, I say after Lorenzi, there's no more surprise. Believe me, I love Paolo. He's a great guy. He's incredibly smart. But his determination is one of the best on tour. And there's the guy, is it Victor Estrella Borges? Yes, also. He broke top under like 32, 33, yeah. maybe even. One event in his native yeah. country, two or three years ago. Of course, it was in attitude, just a little bit, you know, just two yeah. kilometers too high. But still, it's an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. And what about a player that you felt should and you thought this player is well on their way and they never quite made it to where you thought? Quite, there were quite a lot. There yeah. were quite a lot of those, unfortunately. And uh, for me, one of those is, uh, is a Russian player, uh, Alexander Kudravtsev. Yes. He made, I think, max into the one, I would say 50, 140. Okay. But he had the game and the strokes to be top 20. He was hitting the ball harder than Safin at his best days. Okay. He really had a crack at it, but just mentally never, you know, never sustainably made it. And that was the problem. And there were, and for, there was a lot of guys like this. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you compete, you compete against them. And then suddenly they just, they just drift away. They just, you know, they just lose the patience and they don't want to do it anymore. Stickability is one of the, one of the biggest attributes to have in this sport. You know, people that just stick at it and stick at it and keep going and keep fighting. What an amazing attribute and skill to have. Well, you lose basically 90% of the time every yeah. week. Yeah. You have to live with it every year, year in and year out. You will lose on 90%. Yeah, you will win maybe three matches, lose one. Yeah. Maybe you win a tournament. But unless you're Roger, Djokovic or Rafa, you will lose a lot. Yeah. You have to take it and you have to learn from it. And you have to swallow it and you have to come back. Yeah. Incredible. Before before we move into our quick fire, Sergi, we cannot have you on here without talking about centre court, Roger Federer. <laughs> what, what an what an experience! Talk talk us through that. Well, uh, I definitely remember my draw in the first round. I played Charlie Berlock, another exceptional. Uh, bulldog on the court because not really a lot of capabilities but really determined to to play tennis and uh, i saw the first round and then i saw the second round and i said well somebody has to pay for the first round because we played on grass and let's be realistic charlie is not the great competitor on grass he's really good on clay but grass is not his surface and back then the grass was still fast and good and I said, well, somebody will have to pay for the, for the round one free uh, buy, I, I was calling it, you know, a, a freebie. Uh, we were staged to play center court, uh, which was an amazing experience. And when you walk on the center court, usually, you know, when you're playing Roger or Rafa, usually they let you come in first. You know, so you come in first and the crowd cheering you up and you're like, wow, it's actually nice. You know, they cheer you up. But when Roger steps on the court, that's when you understand that basically the crowd was not cheering you up. That was just noise. <laughs> when he comes in, it slams you slightly like five feet underneath the grass and center. <laughs> People go crazy for him there. And uh, it's definitely not easy to swallow from the start. Uh, I remember, you know, my... Honestly, and I, I, I don't have to lie. I mean, being even 30, at that time, I was, what, 110, I think, at yeah. that time when I played him. Because I just dropped my points from the previous week. So on the day of the Wimbledon, I was out of the top 100. Uh, 
my only goal was not to get killed at that time, okay. at that particular day. Because, you know, playing Roger on grass, it can end up badly. Like, you can really get washed off court was a pretty straight set. It's not really, let's say, you wouldn't really matter on the court. You know, it all determines to him what he will do with you. And my mindset was just, you know, to, to find a gap to give him a fight, you know, to, to engage in a fight, not to get killed from the start, to, to hang on to him from the start, you know, and being able. It was never in my mind, although I will always deny saying it, it was never in my mind going out there winning. Yeah. Because it was just too big to embrace. Yeah. So my mindset was go out there, don't get killed, you know, try to try to enjoy it, you know, it's a center court after all, you know. And I remember losing the first set. I remember having a break point and then losing the first set. And I seven, remember myself lost at seven six, I think. Huh? Uh, seven six seven five at tiebreak. I remember sitting there, and you know, I was like, well, you know, there was a great fight, you know, you you, you lost a seven six on the center court. It's not bad, but then I caught myself on a on a thought that actually I had a break point and he didn't have one at that set. And I was thinking to myself that, well, if I'll be able to go on and play my service games as I did up to now, I might actually have a chance of, you know, fighting some more. So I uh, basically did that. And uh, of course, let's say after winning the second and the third and being break up in the fourth, that's when you start to realize that you actually can win. Yeah. And when that's when the problem comes in. Because not that you are winning the match, is that you're winning against Roger and you're winning against Roger at Wimbledon Center Court. That's two big problems because you might beat Roger in terms of tennis, but he's, I would say, uh, uh, his name has a bigger weight yeah. or the same weight as him on the tennis court. So you need to, you know, to get through that as well. And that's not an easy task either. So it was emotionally very hard. Uh, to go through, uh, I was superbly lucky to to win off the tiebreak. I think if I would lose that tiebreak in the fifth set, there was not much chance left for me. But I will definitely remember that victory. I will remember that match for a longer period of time. I would. It's still not top one for me in my career. I still cherish my four uh, titles more than this match. Yeah. But still, there in top five. And he'd also, if I remember rightly, it was something like thirty six. Con consecutive quarterfinals or more that he'd made. So it was, it was, and I remember even the commentator talking about it being the greatest upset of all time. And 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 look, I know how good you were, and okay, you're 116 in the world. I know that the gap's not that big, but for people watching tennis to be able, I guess, to go through the door, you know, there's plenty of people over the years that have that have seen the door open a little bit. And haven't quite had the balls to go through, you know. How how did you get through it in those last few moments of the match? Uh, honestly, it came to the moment where I had six four and serving in the in a four set tiebreak. Yep. And I serve a perfect serve down the tee. Yeah. Which I served basically all the match. When I was serving in that spot, usually I was winning the point. Mm -hmm. Usually he was either not able to to get to it or he would give me an easy volley. And this time, suddenly it came to my feet and I had to pick it up and he passed me. And there was suddenly 6-5 him serving. And I was walking back to the baseline. I was thinking, well, you had your shot. 
<laughs> you know, all the doors closing. <laughs> Next yeah. is the fifth set and goodbye. That that yeah. was my concept. Maybe yeah. it was to relax myself, maybe. But yeah. I definitely remember thinking this way. And then we did a rally. I was able to to return his first serve. We're getting the rally. And then the back and down the line, basically, I couldn't believe that that happened. Mm. It was just maybe he got tied. Maybe some, but that was definitely not the mistake I would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily it happened uh, or seven six for him and we go into the fifth set i'm very not sure that i will be able to to go through those doors as you said many guys been there but yeah not very few well 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 done no but nobody can take that away from you nobody can take your four titles away from you is there is there another day like that for yourself is there another title in there what's next for you why why are you still playing and what what can you achieve in the rest of your career well, I played Davis Cup for Ukraine for 14 years. And, and since day one, I started. My only goal was to get us to the World Cup. Uh, unfortunately, with this restructuring and uh, new whatever concept and, and you know, what they did in Madrid, it's got a bit it's slightly harder. But uh, I said that I still, we're playing a match against uh, Israel next year in March. And that will be the match to play a match for the playoffs. So if we beat okay. Israel, we'll be in playoffs for the world group. And that's basically one of the things that keeps me in the game because that's my last shot. And then I can say, okay, whatever, you know, in 15 years, I've done whatever I could for the Davis Cup. Uh, plus, I was planning to put this year after after Olympics or Wimbledon. I was still trying to get a shot at, at Olympics. Uh, that got cancelled. Then Wimbledon got cancelled. And I said, well, it's either I'm going to quit on the terms of pandemic Yep. Or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna toughen up, uh, as they say, and and quit on my own merits. Uh, it was not an easy discussion in the family because my wife was really pretty ready mentally for me coming home, and yep. uh, I already started a, a wine project in Ukraine, which also needs my careful int- attention. But uh, we decided that you know we we give it a shot. Uh, we give it another season or half of the season, basically up to the next year. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to play some doubles uh, across as well, just in terms of maybe getting into the Olympics in a different merits, not only singles. But uh, we'll see. Uh, the the only reason why I'm still here and I'm in Istanbul and I'm competing and I actually lost to, basically lost to Jay Clark six four six love. Yeah, love. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Embarrassing. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> but that's another part. Uh, you know. I take it. I mean, that's the only thing that tennis let me. I, I, I saw, I did see that result. And, you know, obviously these results, we, we all know that they happen from, from time to time. But once once the playing stops, you know, and we wish you the very best the next six or 12 months, what's then next for you? Are you a tennis coach? Are you staying in the game? Where, where does it go? Well, I'm going to show you. Well, I have it here, but... Well, you know, I was never drinking. I was a professional athlete for the majority of my life. Basically, I started to drink wine when I was 24 because I ended up in Bordeaux. But I would love to stay in sports, but this happened meanwhile. Oh, wow. It looks, this is on the Ukrainian market label. European label looks a bit different. So those that are listening, he's just, he's shown me a bottle of red wine. (laughs) Not opened, not opened, by no, the way. Not opened, not, not yet. No, not basically, yet. I, I, um, I rented a, 
winery. Uh, in Ukraine, you were not able to buy any wineries uh, from the government, but we worked on it. And in 2015, and basically 2018 is the first vintage which we produced, uh, two reds and one white. And that's something that I'm really passionate about and I really love doing. Uh, yes, there's still some space for sports. Uh, unfortunately, the problem with coaching is that you have to travel if you want to do it professionally. And I guess my family had enough of, uh, of traveling on my part. Yeah. But I'd love to stay in touch with the sport in some way. I still have a, a part in a club in Kiev uh, where we we try to you know to to get new talents, some basics in tennis. It's a it's a fairly good uh, fairly good club, and we try our best to do it there. So there are projects running. Uh, there's basically three kids to look after, which is not easy. I guess Sire Andy Murray knows a thing about that. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, life's, you know, life brings you challenges. I take everything that I, I got on the tennis court and this life, everything they teach me, which was fun. And honestly, meeting great people, being in a great places, being able to communicate with, uh, with different sports people, different, uh, on different levels of different lives, basically. You know, you, you talk to the normal people where you go to Portugal, you go to Egypt when you start, or Uzbekistan, you know, you see how people live there. You understand what they what they live with and how they want to live it it opened your your ability to see clear a lot of yeah. things so Sergi, what uh, what one of my big beliefs is that tennis is an, an amazing vehicle to help us take us through life you know it's not just about winning trophies it's about all of the things that we learn i've never known anyone learn that after 20 years on the tour that they then have to go and spend the next 40 years drinking red wine to get over it all, you know? So you're, so you're, the, you're, the, you're the first that's come on the show for that. But what an absolute treat, honestly. What a treat to have you on the podcast. It's been, it's been such a great conversation. I massively thank you for your openness, your honesty, your intelligence, you know, and, and just getting stuck into the conversation. I've loved it. And because of it, you get to do our quick fire round as a way of us saying thank you. Now, John, is your Wi-Fi strong enough for the quick fire round or am I going to have to take it? They don't have Wi-Fi in Ireland. Uh, it could be you, this one. Yeah, I'm going to mute him. He's not doing that. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Ireland has been separated from the Great Britain. <laughs> um, quick fire round: serve or return? I serve. Red or white wine? Red. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. ATP or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. PTPA, yes or no? <laughs> In the current structure, no. In the potential structure, yes. Five sets at slams or three? Five. I'm with you. I'm with you. Grass or clay? <laughs> what a question. <laughs> do I really have to answer that? <laughs> For the listeners, you do. <laughs> Grass. Injury timeout or not? Oof. Yes. Injury timeout. Okay, we've had a lot of people that have been against it on the show. Um, it just it depends on the merits how it happens. If you just suddenly call the physio saying that you know you have a pain, or when actually something happens and you really need to treat it now, otherwise you're not going to be able to finish the match. Is it too big difference? I know that the players 
they are a lot of times, you know, using this rule to throw you out of balance, but we cannot deny the guy who literally got him injured during the match. Not are, being... they, are they physios or magicians? If someone, someone... Yeah, you think they can help well, that much? I'll tell you one story, and it's going to be a very short story. Uh, 2000, ah, I would say somewhere around 9, 10, 11, Arnold Clement was still playing, and he would, if you would, any, any day you would get him in touch, he would confirm that happened. We play last round qualities and very sick qualities. Uh, I uh, lose the first, I win the second, or other way around, and we're in the third set. And um, during my serve on a 40 15 point, I slip and fell, and I had something crack in my back. But Arnold missed his shot, which means I won the point. <clears throat> Straight off that, I went to the ref and asked, to, for the physio to come because something clicked in my back. Uh, it was uh, a French physio at that time. Uh, he came in and he said, he's not going to treat me. And I know him for ages. You know, me already was established relationship. And he said, he cannot treat me because it's Arnaud Surf and it's not going to be fair because it's 4-3 up for me in the third side or whatever. And it's not going to be fair to delay the match. So, you know, he would treat me before my serve. And at that time, I had, well, okay, if you feel that way, fine. I just, you know, very first point of the next game, I come in, I play a smash, and I basically stay in a full, uh, like, bend down position. I cannot come back. Yeah. My back was completely jammed. They have to wheel off, wheel me off the court on a wheelchair. You cannot imagine the terms and words I was using while I was coming up on this wheelchair and shouting it towards him that he did not treat me. Yeah. So yes and no, they are magicians. They know our bodies. They work with us 365 days a year. Yeah. They know what can work and what cannot. And when it cannot work, they will tell us openly, look, I don't think this is going to help. You know, you're going to make it worse. Yeah. Now these days, the tennis players are more professional. They are really trying, you know, to preserve themselves from getting even more injured. Yeah. So they would rather, you know, retire than compete when they are, you know, exposed to the fact that it might get worse. So I would say yes. In the previous years, it was more of a, a thing that the players would yeah. use to throw you off balance. These days, it's far less. I, I never done it in my life. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's hard to judge. Yeah. Very good, very good. Nice story as well. And warm up, a warm up on court or not? Uh, I, I couldn't care less. We can not warm up on court. We can come straight and playing. I don't see any difference. Yeah, but, that, but there should be a court which is available 24 hours to be, yeah. for the players to get ready just before that. And we can walk off and we can start off. We yeah. don't need to on court. That's, a, that's been a big one. We've had some, we've had some journalists... Um, you know, some really good commentators actually on the show as well. And that's their one of the, they actually, one of the commentators that was on last week was like, bloody Mike Bryan every time would warm up and then go to the toilet. <laughs> so like, so you, you're kind of building this match up, you're building this match up and then all of a sudden it's like four minutes and you, you start losing and, and, and now that you've got the live streams and you're starting to see how many people are watching when somebody takes a toilet break or the warm-up happens you just see the numbers just dropping 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 so going back to i guess our 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 chat around growing the sport you know competing with all of these things if there is ways of speeding speeding the game up to grab people's attention that seems to be a one that's been suggested 
quite yeah. a bit. I would be for it because I think we're losing 10 minutes or maybe 15 minutes between every match for, you know, changing, coming in, warming up again. That just kills the spectator. If he finished one match, he want to see the next one. He doesn't want to see this you know, slow-mo warm-up serves yeah. and you know, come in, get in, play. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. We are the first player that's agreed with that. So that's good. And one rule change that you would have in tennis. One rule that I would change in tennis. Ah, it's interesting. There's many rules I would change, but they're not really visible to the spectators <laughs> in terms of protecting rankings. I would, if I would be able to change one rule, I would cancel all the mandatory. I would have, no, I would have two scenarios. It's either we cancel all the mandatory events for the yep. player, or we extend the bonus pool, which only top 12 players get in the end of the year, which is around I don't know, $18 million pool, which is a nice amount of money for the top 12 players. And I would extend it to the amount of players which are mandatory, which means top 40 at least. Okay. One way or the other, because it doesn't make sense that everybody's playing the mandatory event and yet only top 12 benefit from it. Very good. Sergi, you've been a star. I know I've seen a couple of yawns. I'm not surprised. We've kept you way too long, but you've been brilliant. So th thank you so much for your time. Good luck. We're going to be following with, with great interest the next few months you know go and you've had a, a fantastic career go and smash the next few months you know you deserved it and then go and smash all those bottles of wine after uh, top man thank you thanks guys thanks for having me thanks good thank, night thank you very much big thank you to sergi for for coming on the show um really enjoyed the chat you know could have talked for a couple more hours he, he doesn't hold back in his views, but a very intelligent, very intelligent man. Uh, wish him all the very best with the rest of his tennis career, but also in his new career of, of selling wine. Look out for that one. I didn't think I'd be saying that on the podcast. Uh, also great to have John McGann, my co-host, back on the show. Uh, unfortunately, as you would hear towards the end of the show, he had some Wi-Fi issues. Um, so we didn't get uh, to say goodbye to him at the end. It's part and parcel of, I guess, the new world that we're in, doing things on Zoom calls and podcasts and, you know, having to rely on rely on Wi-Fi. It happens at times. And hope all of you guys are great. Hope you're going to have a great weekend, great day, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Uh, thank you again. There's been some lovely shout-outs and lovely reach-outs from many people that I certainly respect lots lots in the sport and it's very humbling to to hear from you all and hear that you're enjoying the podcast so much so so thank you guys honestly from the bottom of my heart for that and and please do if you think that the conversations are worth listening to send them on to your players your parents send them on to other people and and I can't stress enough just giving them giving them a like a rate or the review on the apple podcasts uh, application really does make a big difference to how far and wide we can get these great podcasts out there and these great guests so thank you again guys have a have a wonderful wonderful day keep striving keep working hard keep smiling but till then i'm dan kiernan my co-host is john mcgann we are control the controllables <laughs>